Hello and welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. I'm Kate Fisher and I'm your host. I've written this podcast to give blood product recipients a platform to tell their stories, to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets or breast milk. This podcast creates a space for blood product recipients and the people who love them to tell their stories of survival. It documents the remarkable lives they go on to live. These stories sometimes detail injury, illness and disability and always come with loved ones of recipients who feared that the people that they love the most might not see the light of another day. This pod takes you on a journey where you can share in the celebration of the amazing lives recipients go on to live, the contributions they make to their communities and the joy they bring to those around them. Anyone who has ever been a donor could have been the one to save these people's lives and becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. This is the second episode of season one. To hear the origin story of this podcast and the story of its namesake, our amazing daughter Marley, please go back and listen to episode one in your podcast feed. And while you are there, we would love you to subscribe. And if you like us, please leave us a review and send an episode to a friend. The reason that we have made this podcast is to thank blood donors and to celebrate the stories of blood product recipients and all the amazing things they go on to do in the world. And our guest today is no exception. Julian blew into our lives through a friend of a friend of a friend arrangement, as all the best people do. He is a man who is living with acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, ADEM, and MOG antibody disease. The only difference between he and Marley is that they worked out what caused his antibodies to start attacking his brain, meaning that his treatment could be more targeted. However, the main treatment that he and Marley receive is the same intravenous immunoglobulin infusion. This is a solution of human plasma proteins with a broad spectrum of antibody activity. It is prepared from large pools of human plasma collected from thousands of donors. You will hear us refer to this treatment during this episode as IVIG. Jules has given me an incredible and at times confronting gift. He has been able to explain to me firsthand what Marley's experience of autoimmune encephalitis would feel like. I have been comforted by the truth of what it was like to experience seizures, status epilepticus, rehabilitation, learning to walk, talk and feed yourself again, the confusion and difficulty of grasping what is reality and what is the psychiatric symptoms of an autoimmune disease that is attacking your brain. There has been so much comfort in this truth and as much as it has been confronting, it has stopped my imagination from haunting my dreams. I quote Julian when I say that he has taught me to catastrophize, hypothesize, and then rationalize. With bravery, honesty, and humility, Jules has shared his stories of having seizures that found him waking up using a pizza as a pillow in a park and waking days later with zero memory of how he got to the hospital. The frustration at loss of bodily function, the change of priorities in his life, and the ways that he projected his anger and frustration, often to no avail. He has given Jeff and I such an honest account of what it was like to live in his body, knowing that his immune system was wrongly identifying his healthy brain cells as foreign and attacking them. His honesty is brutal, pragmatic and refreshing. It's such an incredible gift. Towering over Marley's hospital bed, he is about six foot four. This is the first time that they met. He is a soldier in the Australian Army and has led and lost men in combat. 
our experiences of autoimmune encephalitis come from completely opposite perspectives. He is the patient and me as the carer. He has experienced it and I have watched all the trauma unfold on our little girl, most of which he doesn't remember. This gives me such deep comfort and allows me to approach some of Marley's future trauma events differently. During this hospital visit with Marley, Jules shared what it was like to be a surviving twin and the place that his twin brother, who died within hours of birth, holds in his identity and his family's story. When Jules shared this part of his identity with us, he had no idea that our Campbell is too a surviving twin. We also worked out that he and Jeff played basketball against each other 20 years ago when at university in Perth, and it's hard to believe that the universe didn't intend for our worlds to collide. As we got to know Jules a bit better, we learned about his relationship with his beautiful beagle and best mate Angus and the positive impact that he was having on Jules' rehab, physical and mental health. This further strengthened our resolve to fundraise and advocate for Marley to get a seizure response service dog through Smart Pups. We now have our Paddy. He's Marley's beautiful chocolate Labrador who has now been with us for almost 12 months. He reliably alerts to seizures often hours before they even hit, and he has been incredible at reducing Marley's anxiety and medical trauma by keeping her company during the frequent and extended hospitalizations she's had during this time. Comprehensive multidisciplinary care is absolutely essential for autoimmune neurologic disorders, and I am so grateful to have Patty as a key member of our team. I've invited Jules on the podcast today, not just because he and Marley and also he and Campbell share membership to a club that no one would ever want to be a member of, but also because I feel that we share so many of the same values and approach trauma in a similar way. Jules, quite simply, is the living embodiment of post-traumatic growth. He is the recipient of IVIG made from thousands of plasma donations, and like Marley, this at times has been life-preserving for him, and at times it has been life-saving. It is our absolute honour to have a previously serving member of the Australian Army on the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. We thank him for his service and his sacrifice, and we welcome him to today's episode. How different is your life being one year seizure free? It's a very good question. I think... The driving thing was a lot of false trusts when I started having seizures. I'm like, oh, okay, in a year's time, I'll buy this car or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and with until the sort of May and September seizures last year, when the with the optic neuritis, so my the brain would shoot information into my down my eye and make it go damage the nerve and make it go blind, and mm-hmm. then that shifted, I guess. You know, me looking at what car to buy in September to will I drive at all? And I still don't know that answer, but uh, it's been funny. Like the house I bought has two spas, one in internal and one external. And mm-hmm. my girlfriend made good use of it, uh, makes good use of it. And she figured out all the chemicals and all those sort of things. And I, I guess I broadly ignored it because I wasn't able to use it. And then Yesterday we rode 25Ks and then jumped in the spa to recover and it was just like the house felt complete and I yeah. didn't think about seizures. I'm like, I hadn't had a bath. You know, as I joke, I have been showering since I had seizures. <laughs> um, but, you know, to jump in the spa and crack a beer and sit on a sort of spring afternoon, I'm like this, it really felt normal. And I think 
all the things you've described with Marley as doing are normal yeah. and the yeah. absence of the normal things makes, I guess, during COVID, what you can do is so much more apparent rather than mm-hmm. what you can't because you mm-hmm. know what in COVID people are restricted from doing things. So it makes you really appreciate what you can do a lot more. Mm. I think we found a similar thing when Marley first started having seizures that, you know, you'd be so frightened that, you know, she might lose her sight or she might end up mm. in a wheelchair or any of those things. And then once it progresses, you don't care about any of those things anymore. No. You first just want her to live. Mm. And then if she lives, then you hope that she opens her eyes. And, you know, mm. what's important changes completely. Um, yeah, it's been a big journey for all of us, I think. Yeah, um, can absolutely. you take me back to the first time that you knew that there was anything wrong and when you started being concerned about your health? Good question. So I, I got tapped in December 2018 to go to Iraq at pretty short notice. And then mm-hmm. um, so I started doing the pre deployment administration. And part of that is getting vaccinations, which are checking what you've had previously, what you needed for that part of the world. Uh, And I went in and had sort of pre-deployment medical checks and I had two vaccinations, which is DTPA booster and typhoid. So I think it's diphtheria, sorry, diphtheria, typhoid and pertussis, which is whooping cough. And the second one was tetanus. So two jabs. Yeah. And they give you cursory. I'll come back if there's any issues. And then I went up to Sydney for the pre-deployment course where you just go through the sort of normal things to prepare you for deploying. And I started feeling funny. and started getting sinus pain, but no gunk. It was just pain. Whereas if you get sinusitis and you blow your nose and clear it, it, the pain goes away, but it was Mm -hmm. pretty bad. Um, Then I couldn't go to the bathroom properly. And that was weird. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where they were worried about my kidneys being really damaged. So they used a catheter and overnight in hospital and then went to the defense hospital and they monitored me and then, I started not being able to walk properly, like just walking as if I was drunk, like taking maybe five minutes to walk 300 metres. And and that was weird. And the driving was a bit affected. And then I was packing a bag to put in the car to, you know, packed for a rock and fell over like I was drunk. Then I drove to David Bloom and he thought I was septic and drove me himself in the car and said, ring your girlfriend. And my then girlfriend mm-hmm. met me in the hospital and I got out six weeks later. And I guess it was two distinct, sorry, three distinct fortnights. First fortnight was diagnosed with spy exclusion. Yep. So they tested me for everything. So lumbar punctures, MRIs, PET scans, CTs, everything, more bloods, mm-hmm. just to figure out what was going on. And they finally figured out what it wasn't. So they hit me with IV steroids. And Yep. Oh, sorry, before that, once they figured out there's two weeks of diagnosis, by so two weeks I was basically comatose and all I did was mm-hmm. either vomit or sleep. Yeah. And that's when I dropped 15 kilos in two weeks, which I do not subscribe to. Recommend. Um, no. Um, lucky I had it to lose just. Um, then they hit me with IV steroids, like methyl pred and... Yep. You remember from the 90s, the Demtel ads, but wait, there's more. Like, I was so manic. Like, <laughs> and everyone's like, who is this guy? Because I'd just been out of, like, completely not there. Then I was yeah. manic. Then I had to learn to walk again because of nerve damage between my brain and spine. Sorry, between my brain and legs. Just 
the nerve damage cut off the signals. So my mm-hmm. brain worked and my legs worked. I just couldn't communicate. So I guess I was largely unfazed because I was so high on steroids and so hungry that all I wanted to do was get to the cafe in a wheelchair or on a walking frame and get a ca- get a coffee. Like all I cared about. Yeah. I never really worried because all I wanted to do was eat like mm-hmm. crazy. So that was two weeks. And then once they, during that two week of learning to walk, two weeks of learning to walk again, that was, it could have gone for months or weeks and weeks or months. But I was, I guess, you know, being in the military, someone tells you, tells you to do something for an hour and you do it. And mm-hmm. it really helped me focus to have that goal of, you know, once I got a walking frame, I, I could get to the cafe and have a coffee. And I was like the happiest man on earth. And because mm-hmm. hospital food, as you well know, it's not it's not great. It's pretty ordinary. Yeah, we've certainly look, I get it. long amounts of time. Not great. But I think I paid off the coffee shop dude's mortgage because um, <laughs> it's just nice to have that. And mm-hmm. I had a red walking frame and I used to joke the older people were jealous because my one went faster because it was red. Yeah, and, yours was a Ferrari. I like it. And, yeah, and then a walking stick. And then once I could walk, I just took it very slowly and walking the dog, you know, 500 meters one day kilometer the next day mm-hmm. or next week or whatever and i that was the next goal was to you know i had to walk the dog every day but i just did it progressively then defense funded personal training so that's when i really started to hit my stride pardon the, the mm-hmm. pun but um the issue was seizures then just knocked everything back a couple of pegs because then they're, they're not fun and you know the post confusion and going on to meds mm. and you know, the impact on my then girlfriend because as you well know they're terrifying for everyone who's there and you're yeah, absolutely. I, was, I was largely impervious or unaware of what was happening mm-hmm. um so that was i guess it was you know two steps forward one steps back or once or sometimes one step forward two steps back and mm-hmm. as you guys would appreciate the medical like my neurologist is phenomenal and just seemingly unfazed, although he must have been terrified at some points because mm. they wanted to do a biopsy to there's some patch in my brain, but it was a very an indelicate part of the brain. They'd like to right. get in there would, would cause more damage than it more problems than it solved. Mm-hmm. So I think very good medical staff and you know I can text message my neurologist at any time of the day or night. And I don't think that's normal, but no, no. I've been very blessed with very good staff, very good help. And yeah. I think just always having, you know, little goals and things to work towards, whether it's the coffee in the hospital or, mm-hmm. you know, walking around the block with a dog or. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think too, we have seen this mirrored in Mali. I think, it's very much just having that one little part of your world that you can mm. control. And mm. for you, that was saying, I don't want to eat the hospital food and drink oh. the hospital coffee. The one mm. thing I can control is going and getting my coffee. Mm. Um, Marley did the complete opposite of that. And we had to have her NG tube fed for five weeks at one point. And we thought it was the aphasia not being able to swallow properly and, you know, move her tongue properly mm. post-seizure. And because she'd been intubated for so long, we thought that had something to do with it. And it took us a long time and a brilliant play therapist to work out that she actually was just refusing all food because it was the one thing in her life that she could control. Mm, mm. And that was how her little three-year-old mind was dealing with that trauma 
was to say, I can't control anything else that's happening with my body or in my life right now, mm. but I can control if I'm going to swallow food. And so yeah. very, very slowly we got her back on to food and yeah, it's yeah, just incredible the way that the mind and body interacts and the way that mm. it protects you and, and then your body starts attacking your brain and you've got to try and work out how that works. So um, can you remember your first IVIG infusion and the time that you realised that your survival and recovery were dependent on Australian plasma donors? That's another good question. I guess um, the medical day unit, the old one in the Canberra Hospital, pretty dated. Their yep. booking, I remember their booking system was pencil and paper or, and like a rule, like a school book from primary school. So yeah. there's no searching or anything. I'd look up the date and I was like, what have, have I gone back in time? Yeah. Um, lovely people and I guess it was told my neurologist said look this will help your immune system and I'm like okay and I thought blood plasma I thought it'd be red and it's not mm-hmm. and yeah. I, I guess I just I trusted him implicitly and I still do that mm-hmm. and I didn't fully appreciate what it did for me and what mm-hmm. how compromised my immune system was and I think I've been so focused on just learning to walk again and trying to get back to some sort of semblance of normality that once a month was fine and mm-hmm. I had a couple of adverse reactions which you know was were odd but they passed within an hour like quite bad jaw and shoulder pain just random but right. I guess I a couple of things struck me was how many people it took to provide enough plasma for my bulk yeah. and I joined a forum on Facebook and a lady in America said oh my my GP says I need three transfusions of IVIG over the next three months and they're $100,000 a pop. Yeah. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me because I've probably had 20 in the last two and a half yeah. years. Mm-hmm. And that's that would be $2 million. Well, Marley was on three days out of every 10 at one stage. Mm. She was having IVIG infusion. Yeah. She's a bit littler than you, so she probably didn't need quite as much as what she as what you did. Um, but we had that problem too with the cost between mm. if she had them in um, Sydney or if she had them in the ACT because mm. the expenditure needed to be approved because she was yes. an ACT resident. If she was to have it in New South mm. Wales, there was special expenditure that needed to be approved before she could have the infusions elsewhere. So, yeah, it's a lot of money. And it's hard to fathom because if oh, I consider a lot, if I hadn't been military and I hadn't had private health insurance in America, I'd be broken and dead. And yeah. that, that's not lost on me. Yep, we've had that discussion about oh. Marley too, that we're so lucky to be here because otherwise she wouldn't be here. I struggle with some of the you know, anti-vaxxers and the like in, in Australia thinking that it's an, an affront to their nationality or that, like their sovereignty. or And it's just, we're so lucky. And I think mm-hmm. what I've found is like I run into nurses who I got to know over six weeks and you know, running into them big W and I'm friends on Instagram with one of my the doctors working under my neurologist and mm-hmm. they're just, you know, I drop a bottle of wine into my neurologist every Christmas and yeah. say thanks because I, I don't think they get that thanks or that real appreciation of how what an amazing job they do. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the things we're really looking forward to, we're hoping that Marley is able to start kindergarten of prep, as they call it in Queensland, um, next mm. year. And you're talking about having your goals. One of our big goals is the thought of being able to send a photo of her in a school uniform 
through to some of the people in her treating team because it's just not something that any of us ever thought was going to happen at one stage. Mm. So crossing fingers and toes. We're not there yet. We've got a few more months until we get mm. there, but everything's looking good for her to be able to do no, that. That's really great. No, I think just having those goals and even some things I imagine would have just not even have been considered like me getting in the spa, I couldn't even fathom it. So I just didn't let it be a dream because I'm like, oh, you know. Yeah. And driving will be the next thing. If that happens, I'll be like, mm. you know, I, you sort of count it out or discount it in your brain because mm. you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's just too far away or it's, you know, it's a pipe dream. So, yeah, it's interesting. And I guess too, as us being carers, as opposed to you being the patient, I've talked a little bit earlier in this episode about the different perspectives that we've had on the experience of, you know, an autoimmune condition attacking your brain. Mm. Um, even just from a size point of view, you know, if Marley has a seizure and she's in a life jacket in the pool, it's pretty easy for us to pick her up and pull her out. If you have a seizure in a spa, you have to really think about the caregivers mm. around you too and your safety and being able to get you out of the water and, yeah, just different considerations from different perspectives. Um, so now that you're through the acute phase of your illness, we're talking about goal setting and that kind of thing. Um, what does the future look like for you? What are you looking forward to the most? It's a good question. Um, I think, so my, uh, I was medically discharged and my pension is, I could live on. Like I, I don't need to ever work another day in my life, but I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And Veterans Affairs have been great. So I don't have any medical bills and... I guess it's given me time to take stock of just putting down roots because in the military, every one to two to three years you move or you're deployed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I did in my career six months in Timor, nine months in Afghanistan and 12 months on a UN job in Syria. Um, I don't want to rush to failure. So I guess I'm just hoping to ease in maybe part-time and get my foot in the door and just, not go from zero to hundred, but just sort of ease into it. And one of the main variables is, you know, if I can't drive, then, you know, I sometimes I have the bladder of a four-year-old, so catching a bus is not a mm-hmm. thing. So it's all yeah. just balancing those things. And, um, and I guess just balancing whether I, you know, what I do when I work and whether I do consultancy and just pick and choose what I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. And look, I've been approached by a bunch of people on LinkedIn and, you know, which is very kind, mm-hmm. but I'm just, I, I'm not, because I don't have to rush, I'm not rushing. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, like the, talk about the goals, my goal is to lose weight to fit back into my suits again, because yeah. at the start of COVID, I think I spent a lot of money at MJ Bale because their, their suits are excellent. And I was just buying suits I didn't need, but um, <laughs> I'd done a course early 2020 at the National Security College at ANU and I felt smart and somewhat handsome because I wore a suit and they fitted me and I'm like oh like this is old me back a bit um yeah but I want to you know at 42 I don't want to not work ever again and um I think you know whether it's some volunteer work some consultancy um the flying the ointments the driving and I hope that that clears up touch wood um yeah, I think just taking stock of, you know, and I think it's being mindful and just every day just being very appreciative of what I have. Um, yeah. And the house, you know, is is really icing on the cake because I discussed with my girlfriend about how lucky I considered myself and um, 
I think you would hope more and more people in COVID have appreciated how lucky we are to live in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think we learned that earlier. Mm, we've had that discussion too with, um, you know, surviving a global health pandemic with an immunocompromised mm. child. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people are understanding when your immune system is suppressed you know we're not being difficult when we have to check before Mali attends a play date if Mm. anyone Mm. has had a fever in the last 48 hours or you know all of those things and I think people are facing their own mortality and you know in a way that they haven't before now that COVID is in our face in this way so yeah it's a beautiful time to be really grateful for what we've got Mm. So, and that leads in beautifully to the next part of the um, interview. One of the greatest lessons that you have taught me, and I quote, is from you directly, is that there is no brilliance in developing resilience. You've shared with us some incredible stories of your time as a soldier in the Australian Army, your experience of illness, including seizures, paralysis and temporary blindness, and your medical discharge from the Australian Army. Your premature birth, and the passing of your twin brother, Jeremy, when he was just four hours old. And with your permission, and don't feel like you have to agree to this, but with your permission, we would really like to dedicate this episode to him, if we could, um, to acknowledge the importance that he will always hold as part of your family story. Your resolve to resilience during this time has been the ability to look outside your own experience. And as you have said, it is never all about you which is exactly a big part of the reason why we have made this podcast. So what advice do you give people who are facing life challenges and what have you found as your greatest sources of support? Um, I think, you know, I'm writing on resilience at the moment because I've looked at my own case and I guess, you know, there's a Shakespeare quote about some people are born great, other people become great and others have greatness thrust upon them. And I think, Some people are born resilient, some people become resilient and others have the requirement to be resilient thrust upon them. And Mm -hmm. my brother was heavier than me when he was born and I I was a couple of milligrams lighter and I survived and he died. And I don't, like, I I cannot explain that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that was very difficult to be in the same hospital 40 years later for my mother with her surviving son being really, really crook. And she would try to put on a brave face but I think it, you know she still struggles and yeah I think as a kid I was you know tall and gawky and shy and I think I always had a positive attitude but I hadn't been tested till I joined the army and like I knew I wasn't a wuss but I didn't think I'd be tested in the way that I was but mm-hmm. to go back to your point about thinking about it everyone else in combat I thought about my soldiers I didn't care about myself like you're not stupid but you're not thinking about your own mortality Mm because those blokes are putting their lives in your hands and I guess when I got really sick I was worried about everyone else my then girlfriend my mother you Mm -hmm. know I stupidly worried about not deploying to Iraq when you know but I also realized that I'm replaceable and it really makes you realize that what matters and some people are caught up in their careers and day-to-day lives and they don't really appreciate what they have but I didn't put on a brave face but I would I've told my mother I'll never lie to her I'll be completely honest if I have a good day or a bad day and it was (laughs) funny in a funny way but when I rang her the morning I won lotto she thought I'd had a seizure and it was like because it was like 20 to 7 (laughs) on a Sunday morning like I probably should have had one given what you know given the news but (laughs) Um, 
I think that, as you know, the default setting when someone's crook is that news about them is not going to be good. Yep. Um, and for a year, I've given her nothing but good news. And that's really nice. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, to have her stay in my new place with a new girlfriend and just, you know, everything's come good. I think as you depreciate, there's still remnants of stress and anxiety and concern mm-hmm. that may never leave you. And yeah. not being a parent, but I can't fathom how it would feel. And so I think you, I don't know, I, I, it's never all about me. And the mm-hmm. problem is when everything's going wrong, you you kind of, it becomes all about you because everyone's worried about you, but mm-hmm. you worry about other people. And, um, but, you know, I have an old boss who has a son with profound disabilities and he's a magnificent young man and um, he's got, muscular dystrophy I think and right. you know, he's been been in America doing all these studies and mm-hmm. um, you know and she still works and is bright and cheerful and she must you know and he he's an incredibly resilient kid who will just his body mm. will just deteriorate over time and it's just tragic and mm. she still she lives every you know she spent her she'd spent her last cent on him and yeah I think you know I her husband had a procedure in hospital and because I live so close, I said, come around and just could distract her. And yeah, because you could see it's just how stressed she was because it was seemingly mm-hmm. one thing after the other. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think if you can help someone else, even when you're crook or whatever, and um, with my girlfriend, then girlfriend, once I could walk or go and get a coffee on my, on the weekend, don't come and see me, go and do something for yourself. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you did, I'd, didn't want to be not waited on, but I just didn't want to be inconveniencing other people because, mm-hmm. you know, if, you know, there was times on a, I was in a nappy and I needed, you know, I couldn't press the, I need a nurse button and I needed people. But when you don't, yeah. you're like, okay, I'm good now. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not, you know, other people are bearing the brunt of your issues. Mm-hmm. So, look, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. And it's such, it's hard to believe in hearing you tell the story that it's only been a few years like it when you look at looking at you sitting in front of us now even compared to when we you know saw you in Canberra when you came to visit Mm. Marley in hospital you look so much healthier and Mm. you've got so much more color in your face and you just look so much stronger and your resolve in yourself is so much stronger as well and it's just so beautiful to see someone can go through such a big physical and emotional journey in such Mm. a short amount of time. Now, to close us out on a really good feel-good note, um, I know you've been following the journey of Marley and her seizure response service dog, Patty. Um, In the early days when we were looking at getting a service dog, we were um, very inspired by your relationship with Angus or (laughs) Gus. What do you call him? Angus or Gus? Angus, yeah. Angus, Angus. yeah. Um, And we saw how much he was able to support you emotionally and you know we've heard you plenty of times refer to him as your best mate and we were hoping that we could get a best mate for Marley as well um so we've had him for nearly a year now he reliably alerts to seizures he gives us sort of two to four hours notice before she has an onset of a cluster of seizures um he can do it from the other end of the house they don't even have to be in the same room he's very judgmental of us when he can tell that she's starting to get sick and he doesn't really trust us with her at those times 
Um, and we're very lucky because he is a service dog that he's been able to come into hospital with her as well. So the amount of, you know, medical trauma that he has helped her through has just been incredible and he has really been a key part of her health and rehabilitation. Um, how important has Angus been in your recovery and your ongoing rehab? Um, very good question. I think I found... You know, my ex would bring him to the um, sort of outside the cafe, the hospital there. There's a little mm-hmm. you know, outside area. And like a couple of times, I think she brought him and her parents would take him for a while because she was in the hospital a lot of the time with me to say he wasn't alone too much. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, I found of all the things that made me upset, you know, weaning off steroids kicks your mood around, but I was worried about him. And yeah. We made the decision a couple of months ago to get a second dog so he'd have a mate and that's been a mm-hmm. great move and they're learning bad habits off each other. But I think, <laughs> um, yeah, it's just nice to have, you know, I always worry about his well-being and, you know, make sure he's mm-hmm. got everything. It means you're not thinking about yourself or... Yeah. I think, you know, at 12 and a half, he's in great shape, but it's hard to even fathom not having him. But yeah. Yeah, you know, he'd pick up food from the other end of the house, not seizures, but um <laughs> it's all smell based. That's how Patty picks it up. It's all scent based. One thing I'll never forget is uh it was a Tuesday in October twenty nineteen and I was in at Russell Officers having lunch with uh my late boss and he I'd had a seizure in front of him and his wife and my mother was present. And I was on the bathroom floor doing whatever, and Angus came in and sniffed me as if I had to check if I had food, and then just went back to his bed. And my boss and I were just in absolute hysterics, laughing about it. And that's oh, wow. tragically, my boss passed away two days later. But that's the lasting memory of him yeah. just going, "Your dog was no use to you." I'm like, "Oh, I'm not at all surprised," yeah. because there's dogs <laughs> who are extraordinary, and Angus is not one of them. But, but we're in a good routine, and I think with lockdown, yeah. you know, dogs are got company and they're getting walked all the time and you know they're the true winners so um yeah but they're very special and i think just you know they, he keeps me mindful because every day is a blessing because yeah, his yeah. age of you know i can't take yeah. years and years for granted which i used to because he was a young pup and um yeah and it's I not being more than anything it's just yeah. knowing that you've got to make the most of what you've got mm. And what message would you like to give to Australian blood and particularly plasma donors or anyone who's listened to this episode today and is considering becoming a donor after hearing your story? Oh, look, a a genuine thank you. I think it's a simple gesture. Look, I hate, I've been shot at and I hate needles and I hate cannulas, but Mm -hmm. if you can deal with it and I think you get a free coffee and maybe a lollipop, whatever. um, Milkshake. The the milkshake, (laughs) silly me. I haven't been in there, um, but I think the for such a small gesture, it has a marked effect on so many people. And um, having a a lot of donors makes a huge difference. And even mm. if, you know, hearing me and others say that at least puts it into perspective because you don't see mm. the end state of you know what your donation does. Mm. Um, and I guess like donating money to the Smith family, you may see that you know, through you're helping a child, but this helps people of all age groups and variety mm-hmm. of conditions. And I think it's something that 
if you can, if people do it, it makes a massive difference. And it's, you know, you may not, people may not want, I guess, you know, a ticker tape parade and saying thank you, but just mm. saying, you know, for people like myself and people like you who've seen and felt the direct consequences of people's generosity, mm-hmm. um, the only disappointment is none of the plasma, you know, has been given by someone to make my hair grow back. But, you know, I look at home. <laughs> Which you know, is so unfair because Marley's oh. hair is so lush and beautiful and mm. she's having frequent plasma infusions. <laughs> well, my, at least my beard's okay, but... <laughs> yeah, one of, the, of all the side effects, that would have been a good one. But Take no, what we look, can. Yeah, look, I think it's one of those things. And my girlfriend, I'm pretty, very proud of her. She donates plasma. And I think yeah, it's a great initiative. And I think you highlighted that during COVID, the donation levels have dropped. And I hope that mm. things like the podcast and, you know, mm. I, you know, I think recognition of what people do will hopefully get those levels back up and people doing regular donations if they can. Jules, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for sharing your story and all the incredible things that have come after being a blood product recipient. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, please go to www.lifeblood.com.au and we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood Team Tally. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher, with audio production by my lovely husband and Mali's dad, Jeff. And as always, we will leave the final word to Molly herself. Thank you for my plasma.